Greetings, greetings, and welcome. Welcome to another edition of Atlas Information Live. We are grateful and humbled that you have chosen to join us here today. And as is tradition with Atlas Info, we are putting the uh, link into the chat, and it should um <clears throat> it's there on screen if you wish to participate in today's conversation today's discussion was born out of a week long experience of one encounter after another after another after another of facing the stonewalling, avoiding evasive and insidious expressions of self-deception in others. And so subtle and clever and diverse were these various tactics on display in the minds of these individuals, which they were not aware of. They were completely oblivious to how their own minds were deceiving them and sabotaging them. That it became clear the topic of discussion for today had to be that. And in each and every one of these encounters, we did an appropriate amount of self-reflection and meditation on ourselves, on our eyes, on our I. Am I being deceived? Is my mind working to self-sabotage me in my efforts, in my pursuits, in my life's work, which is Atlas, the Atlas Project. And how does the self-deception of my mind come between me and my innermost being, Atlas? And how does, how do the self-deceptions of my mind spurred on by various egos come between me and the work that we are here to do, Atlas and I, on behalf of Alux, the Logos. And so some of what we have to share today is based on our own experience in 
exploring ourselves. But this week in particular brought with it such a diverse uh, plethora of mental gymnastics which it was startling and illuminating and we had to have an opportunity to share it with you because perhaps perhaps your own mind engages in some of this mental gymnastics with you preventing you from hearing message messages which you need to hear preventing you from seeing the truth of objective reality as you need to see it and mental gymnastics which cause you to outright reject or react um, negatively or evade and avoid and what comes to mind is a game that we used to play as children in the schoolyard the game did not have a very pleasant sounding name we called it murder ball and in murder ball the point of the game is basically everybody would line up against a wall in the schoolyard and the point of the game is someone would have a tennis ball or a rubber ball or some suitably soft or softer ball uh, sometimes we would play with an indian rubber ball and if you know what that is you know that it's not pleasant to be hit with an Indian rubber ball that's traveling at any reasonable velocity. We would never play with a hard ball or even a soft ball or like a, bit like a baseball. We would never do that. But the point of the attacker, of course, is to hit individuals <laughs> with the ball. And of course, if you're up against the wall, the point is to not get hit and it's uh, astonishing what the motor instinctive sexual brain is capable of that's the brain of our physical body it's astonishing and it's the fastest of our three brains it's astonishing what it's capable of uh, to avoid pain or to accomplish some physical feat which we have uh, assigned it and the contortions and the the movements and the evasions and the tactics and the strategies that are that the, that the brain which governs our physical body is capable of doing as fast as that brain is it is not quite as sophisticated as our intel, our intellect as our mental brain the brain of our mental body because although the brain of our physical body is very intricate and sophisticated when it comes to the 
understanding and the management and movement of all the intricate aspects of the physical machine, it doesn't require sophistication of intellect. And because of that, the mental body, although slower in its reactions, and our emotional body, which likewise is faster than the mental body, but still slower than the physical body, those two brains of ours, the mental, the brain of the mental body and the brain of the emotional body, they combine and they work together to create similar elaborate contortions and evasions and strategies and tactics. Anything and everything that they possibly can to avoid pain. Just like we would, up against the wall, do whatever we needed to do to avoid getting hit by the ball. The mind will do anything and everything in its power to avoid getting hit with the truth. You are all no doubt well aware of the expression to shoot the messenger. And to one degree or another, we have all been there. We have all delivered a message to someone which they needed to hear. And we took it upon ourselves to deliver that truth. And for all of our good intentions and goodwill and effort on their behalf, we were met with, at best, skepticism, at worst, anger and resentment and blame such that we were no longer just the messenger of the truth. We weren't just delivering the truth. We were somehow the cause of that truth. We were responsible for it somehow. We were to blame whatever pain or discomfort or, or uh, negative emotion which sharing that truth triggered within the individual, they saw us as the cause of their pain and suffering. And they projected that pain and suffering on us. And they wished and willed for us to participate in their pain and suffering because misery prefers company. We've all been there. And if we are honest with ourselves, we have all played the other role. We have all been in a situation at some point in our life where we received truth from a messenger, whoever that messenger was, and we reacted badly. And we lashed out at them for whatever discomfort, whatever pain, whatever expectation had, been, had not been met. Now it was their fault. Whereas they might just be the messenger, the harbinger of bad news. Now, it is very easy, especially in these modern times, to 
dismiss or label the shoot the messenger phenomenon as cognitive dissonance, which is at once a powerful expression, a useful expression, but And in some levels, it's a descriptive expression. Although many people won't know what dissonance means. It's a word that's not used in general parlance. Cognitive dissonance or disconnect. Disharmony. or silencing, to silence, to shut down, to shut up, to not receive. The root word of sonance is sound, sonic, vibration and sound. And sonance, as a, an elaboration on that word, is to be in sonic vibration and, and in harmony. So dissonance is to shut down and avoid and prevent sonnets. It's to prevent those sonic waves, those sonic vibrations, that sound from fulfilling its destiny. And yes, yeah, so cognitive dissonance is descriptive and it is somewhat valuable. But what is behind the cognitive dissonance and how does it work? How does it function? And that's what we're after today. It's not enough to say, oh, he has cognitive dissonance or I have cognitive dissonance or that's just cognitive dissonance. Well, what is that? Cognitive dissonance is an effect and every effect has a cause. So what is the cause? Likewise, if we go one step down, we can say, well, cognitive dissonance is a form, but only one form, of self-deception. Okay. Self-deception. I'm deceiving myself. That's what self-deception suggests or implies. But how does one go about doing that? What is the actual psychological mechanics, the, the metaphysical machinery at work that causes us to deceive ourselves? Because would anybody willingly and consciously deceive themselves? Does that make any sense? What do you have to gain by deceiving yourself? Now, coming back to our murder ball example, 
if your primary goal is the pursuit of pleasure and the avoidance of pain, and the reception of bad news, the reception of a harsh truth causes you a great deal of distress, a great deal of pain, a great deal of suffering. Your worldview, your security and your comfort is disturbed by the truth, then perhaps, yes, perhaps you will, on some level, actively deceive yourself. You will do anything you can to avoid that pain, to avoid the disturbance of your little world, your comfort and security, your little bubble, which you have constructed carefully over a lifetime. And you live your world inside your little bubble. It is a bubble of belief. It is a bubble of self-image. It is a bubble of contentment and comfort and security. You do not want your bubble disturbed. And you certainly don't want anybody to come around and burst your bubble. And if somebody does come and threatens to burst your bubble or disrupts your bubble, and you immediately, something inside of you immediately reacts to that disturbance as a potential threat, because someone who disturbs a bubble could very easily be packing a pin. It could very easily, this disturbance of our bubble could very likely be a prelude to a burst. The primary egos involved in the construction and protection of that bubble are fear and pride. Fear, of course, because the desire for comfort and security, the desire to control outcomes, the fear of outcomes other than those which we desire. This is a very innate, primal instinct in all animals. And we've talked extensively about fear. Uh, fear is responsible for the four primal instinctive responses to danger, to threat. Most people just talk about fight or flight. And yes, fight or flight are definitely ways to, in which uh, all beings can react to threats. But there's also fake and fawn. There's four F words. Fight, flight, fake, or fawn. Now, fake 
is something that, for example, an opo uh, opossum does, an opossum does. It, it goes limp. It, uh, it, it plays dead, basically. Or we can be frozen by fear. We could be paralyzed with fear. And that's one in the same. It's a different, different type of expression. Um, there have been many cases throughout history where someone facing danger, threat of their life, um, they found that the best strategy that they had in that pr precise moment was to play dead. As long as they could demonstrate that they weren't a threat to their enemy, their enemy would just walk on by. They'd leave him alone. He's already dead. What more could I do to him? The fourth way in which fear can react to threats is fawn. And fawn is the phenomenon behind things like uh, Stockholm Syndrome. Now that's where captives, hostages, uh, end up forming relationships with, a, um, with their captors. They end up having, uh, they end up <clears throat> sort of befriending them, idolizing them and respecting them as a power and, and, and as an authority. And fawn is a strategy or tactic that says, if I am under the knife of this individual, if this individual is threatening my life and my very existence is in their hands, do I want to be on their bad side or their good side? If you are, if you are in a family of foxes and you're a baby fox and a pack of wolves comes and ravages the den and all your brothers and sisters are dead and your, your mother and father fox are dead and the alpha comes for you, in that moment, you can't run away, you certainly can't fight, and you probably won't be able to play dead. So, would it not be, as a final resort, would it not make sense to try to befriend the Alpha? Maybe, just maybe, he'll adopt you. Maybe the wolf pack will adopt you. So, this is actually, um, also plays a role in why women stay in abusive relationships. And why it is that women will, and men, both, why we will remain in an abusive relationship. Because if someone is holding power and authority over us, and is demonstrating their power and capacity to hurt us, to inflict pain upon us, to fawn after them, and win them over, and get into their good graces, is a viable strategy. To, for, for survival and to maintain as much comfort and security as possible. Because for many individuals in abusive relationships, the fear of being alone is greater 
they the it's the it's the choice between the devil you know and the devil you don't because this person may be abusive to me but i've gotten used to it i know his ways i know what he's like what and i know how to get on his good graces i know how to push his buttons i know how to stroke his ego i know how to so i can i can work within the confines of of his madness and his anger and his uh, uh, idiosyncrasies and eccentrisms but if i go out on my own it's a big wide world out there and who knows what kind of crazies are out there that I'm going to have to start learning from, from the get-go, from ground zero. I'm going to have to learn all of their ways and get into their good graces and all this other stuff. Whereas this guy, so yeah, once in a while, he lets loose on me. Once in a while, he gets verbally abusive, uh, emotionally abusive, possibly even physically abusive, but it's once in a while. The rest of the time, things are good, things are fine. You know, we can manage. And besides, he's good looking and he's strong and he's this and he's that and he'll and and he will defend me from others. It's just that now and then he flies off the handle and takes his anger and frustration and this and that out on me. I'm his punching bag. That's fawn. So Some of these can combine. Fight and flight, for instance. Fighting, and anyone who has ever studied martial arts knows that fighting is a dance between offense and defense. And defense is not just blocks, but it's avoidance. It's getting out of the way of your enemy's attacks. We mention this because sparring in martial arts teaches us in the allegory of the body, shows us what's going on in our psychology. And we don't just mean sparring with somebody else, but our own psychology sparring with us. So when we talk about mental gymnastics, it is more than useful to have in the back of your mind to visualize the many kung fu movies and the like the matrix and in more modern times but certainly from the 70s and um and so on uh and the wire work of the hong kong kung fu movies of jet lee and jackie chan etc etc and you look at this these incredible acrobatics that these martial artists do in order to defeat their opponent but very often, the most engaging or exciting sequences are when the martial artist is surrounded and inundated by an army. They are beset upon all sides 
by adversaries. And one after another, after another, after another, they deflect, they dodge, they avoid, and they, and they avoid getting hit, they avoid harm. This is sort of what's happening inside of us when we are beset upon by the truth. When that truth is overwhelming, when that truth is, it's, it's so in our face, we're surrounded by it, we're so threatened by it, our comfort, our security, our complacency, the status quo, our established identifications and attachments. And all of a sudden, our mind turns into Jackie Chan or Jet Li. And we're fighting off that comprehensive truth which is encroaching upon us and closing in. And, and we are at risk of being, of, of having our bubble burst. So all of a sudden, our mind and our emotions, because our emotions get stirred, our mind leaps into action and it becomes like a Jackie Chan. And it's jumping all over the place and it's, it's blocking and it's deflecting and it's punching back and it's avoiding and it's doing all of these mental gymnastics and leaping from one opponent to another, or from the stairs, to the balcony, to outside, to the rooftop, to the, right? Because those martial arts sequences always go very quickly. They, they move, um, not just uh, through time, but through space, but very quickly. So different scenery, right? To keep it always exciting and constant, but also to distract us. And distract our, to distract us from the truth. All of that sparring and fighting and mental gymnastics is really all about flight and getting away, of avoiding the truth altogether. But the truth is so overwhelming, we have to fight our way out of it. We have to survive and fight long enough to then escape and get away and live to fight another day. So, to use uh, yet another allegory or an analogy, someone is coming and is disturbing your bubble. And immediately, your psychology reacts to that as if they are a threat. A credible threat. And that they are here not just to disturb the bubble, but burst it. So immediately, inside the bubble, forces are set in motion to begin reinforcing the bubble and begin moving back and forth to get the bubble away from the threat, to avoid the, the disturbance and avoid the potential puncture of having the bubble burst altogether. Looked at it from this these simple 
analogies and recognizing that the desire for comfort and security is primarily fear. But it gets a little complicated when the comfort and security that we have is related to our own self-image, our beliefs about ourselves gets pulled into the mix. That's pride. Self-image and too much self-love, vanity. If the bubble that's being burst or is under threat relates to our own, the comfort and security that we have established for ourselves, based around ideas and beliefs that we have about ourselves, then pride and fear are now working together to avoid and deflect and reinforce and get away from the truth. And this week, uh, this week was a case of um, constant facing of individuals who including individuals in our own family. And that's maybe where we should start because um, after all, when we are dealing with people who we have a very, very strong emotional connection with or very strong energetic connection with, someone who is uh, basically in our soul family, not just our biological family, but in our soul family, and that they are in our lives there for, for that sort of reason, to help our soul develop. We have a very powerful, deep, deep, deep connection. And because of that, a tremendous amount of energy is exchanged whenever we have an encounter with them. And because they are mirrors to us, and they are karmically bound to us, many of our egos reflect one another, and we can very easily trigger one another. But when you have an individual in your family that you're trying to help, and you're trying to convey information to them, which would be most helpful to them and would help alleviate their suffering, but they don't want to hear it. It is, and not because they know what they know or they, they think they know what they know or anything else. In this particular instant, this family member was attached to their suffering. They were attached to 
their anger and their resentment that was projected towards a computer company. For years, they had been suffering from this computer company's insistence that and trying to push upon them and force upon them a certain way of using the device, a certain service associated with that computer company and that, and that device. And with each progressive generation of software, that insistence became stronger and stronger. And that company kept trying to push and force this particular service on, upon my father. Now, my father doesn't like change, but he especially doesn't like cloud services and all that kind of stuff. He just wants his stuff on his computer and leave me alone. Well, it came to us to have to do something on that machine for our father. And um, we took it upon ourselves to, you know, make, make some of these uh, aggressive messages go away. So they stop harassing him all the time. And, and, uh, and he said to us, he said, yeah, but they're going to come back. They always come back. They're going to come back. And he was very adamant about that. That they no, he knows they're going to come back. They're just going to come back. And we were trying to explain to them, explain to him why they were coming back. And now the, the changes that we've made, and, so, and he's, he didn't want to hear it. No, don't, don't, don't talk to me. Don't talk to me. They're going to come back. They're going to come back. That's all there is to it. And that's it. And in that moment, it became startling, startlingly clear that at 83 years old, our father was attached to this particular hobby horse, this bugaboo. He was identified with it. He was attached to it. This is the way this company is. And, and he, he could not let go of it. He did not want to have that bubble burst. He did not, he, he, he did not want to be able to sit down in his computer and not be harassed because if his computer kept harassing him, then he could hit his fist or, or pump his fist and say, this darn computer company, rah, 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 rah. He, he didn't want to let go of that. So he didn't want to hear it. What beliefs, what behaviors, what phenomena in our lives are we so attached to? What suffering do we subject ourselves to, which we have, be which we have become so accustomed to, so habituated to, that they are part of our bubble? that they are part of our comfort and security. 
that they are part of our belief that we know what the world is like. That we know this computer company. We know the government. We know what the world is like. We know how things are and how things work. So that if someone comes and offers alternative information or information which offers to release us from that anger and bitterness or whatever form of suffering it is, we reject it. I don't want to hear it. Don't, 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 don't tell me. I don't want to hear it. I know what's what, and that's it. Don't, I've, I'm used to it. I'm, you know, that's, that's it. I don't want to hear it. It's a difficult concept to wrap our heads around. But in a very real way, that's what individuals who suffer from substance addiction are facing with and dealing with every day. They're living with a demon, a self-sabotaging, self-destructive demon. They're drinking themselves or gambling themselves or fornicating themselves into oblivion. And yet, they cannot be helped until they what? They have to be able to stand up in a group of other addicts and raise their right hand or put their hand on their heart or whatever and solemnly declare my name is so and so and i am an addict in other words they have to admit it to themselves and they have to be held to account to that admission until they do that they cannot be helped why because they're living in self-deception they're living in self-deceit. Oh, I can handle it. Oh, I can handle my drugs. Oh, I can handle my gambling. Oh, I can go to Ni I can go to Niagara Falls. Oh, I'm only going to take this much money with me. I'm only going to gamble what's in my pocket. Two hours later, they're heading to the ATM. Or I'm going to go to the bar, but I'm only going to drink what's in my pocket. An hour later, and they're run and they're starting a tab or they're pulling out their credit card, or whatever. They're deceiving themselves. Or rather, something inside of them is deceiving them. But that voice of deception, that voice of self-deception, that's why it's called self-deception, because it always presents itself as an I. Oh, I can handle this. Oh, I'm not addicted. I can quit whenever I want. I, 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 there's a million of them. We've never been that kind of an addict, so we can't rhyme off all the excuses. But talk to an addict. Or anyone who's, well, an addict is an addict for life. So um, they'll, they'll tell you what the voice is in their head. And how they how those voices in their in their head rationalize and get them to do things and and 
perpetuate the self-destructive, self-sabotaging addiction, self-deceit. And you talk about mental gymnastics. On the flip side of addiction, we could simply talk about habits and breaking habits and forming new habits. And if you've ever tried to be on a diet, for example, put yourself on a diet, or even tried fasting, and then carefully observed your mind and your emotions and your physical body, and observed the psychological gymnastics, the energetic, mental and emotional gymnastics that your three brains will put you through while you're, you know, going through withdrawal, so shall we say, when you are, for example, the first uh, eight to 12 hours of a fast. Um, on the, um, on the point of, um, uh, addiction, uh, Benjamin says, uh, I've been to AA meetings and I can hear it in their voice. They're not being honest with themselves, but who am I to judge? Well, that's always a danger, right? That's always a danger because if someone's modus operandi, if their, if their status quo is lying to themselves and they've been lying to themselves about their addiction for years how are they all of a sudden going to flip the switch and be totally honest about that addiction? It's a relapse, you know, falling off the wagon and falling back into addiction and the, the uh, cycle of, 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 you know, getting clean and then falling back into our old ways. That's something that even the demon inside of us, the demon of addiction, can orchestrate. In other words, many people will end up in one of those meetings and the demon is going to play along. Yeah, sure. Sure, why not? I'll tell you what, let's get this AA stuff out of the way. Let's get it handled and dealt with so that we'll give you three months, six months clean. And then after we're going to come at you and hit you really, really, really hard. You'll fall off the wagon and you'll be completely devastated. And, and the self-loathing will just come back with such a vengeance because you can't even get this right. And AA and uh, uh, the AA is just a bunch of um, BS. It can be very, very, very devastating. Someone who falls off the wagon, someone who has a relapse. They go through all this effort and all this struggle and all this suffering to climb out of their pit, to have a reprieve, a short reprieve, only to fall back in again, but they don't fall into the same pit. While they weren't looking, while they were, while they were busy climbing out of it, the demon was busy digging the pit deeper so that when they fall back into it, they fall another 10 feet or 20 or 30 feet deeper into the pit. When we say self-deception and the egos behind it are insidious and clever and diabolical and malevolent, 
we are not using these words by accident, and we're not using these words as hyperbole. There's a reason why egos are called demons. There's no, there's no mincing words. There's no, and they, this is their divinely ordained purpose to cause us to fall, to cause us pain and suffering, to prevent us from achieving our destiny in life, and to prevent us from knowing ourselves. This is why they exist. And also to teach us about our own karma, to teach us our lessons, to hold a mirror up to ourselves, all of these things. They are the expressions of our worst self, the false self. And that's what they rule, and that's their job. And they are the adversary, the shaitan, which we must conquer. But as a martial arts opponent, you will find none better, more clever, more subtle, faster, quicker, to defeat the adversary is, is, is tremendous. And we know how difficult an adversary they are because we visualize what happens when that adversary is confronted by the all-encompassing, comprehensive nature of objective reality. And then, boom, the adversary turns into Jackie Chan. And we can observe this in ourselves. And even if we are at a level where we don't react that way anymore, we can observe it in others. And when you you're trying to have a discussion with someone or a conversation with someone and you're watching their locus of concentration and, and, and attention bounce around like it is phenomenal the way in which again the mental gymnastics that is that is taking place inside of them which is preventing them from focusing long enough to actually hear what it is you're saying. Or they'll hear a little snippet of it. And as soon as they hear that snippet, boom, they're onto something else. We had an extensive conversation with someone very recently. And this individual was relaying to us an event in their life in which they were delivering a message to somebody. And this somebody that they were delivering a message to had asked them, if you hear anything, please do let me know. I'll greatly appreciate it. So, this individual heard something. This individual brought that information, what they heard, to the person who had asked for it. And their reward for doing what this person had asked is this person immediately lashed out at them and immediately went on the attack because the best defense is a good offense, right? This is the foundation of the shoot the messenger phenomenon. If, we can, if I can deflect the entire 
con uh, uh, situation, conversation, put it back on the messenger and make it about them, then my bubble will be safe and secure. And so my fear very quickly turns to anger and my pride turns to anger. And now anger, we, 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 we unleash anger on the messenger, like crying havoc and letting slip the dogs of war, right? So fear and pride are safe and sound inside the bubble and they get anger to do their dirty work, to go and attack the person who's threatening the bubble. Like a couple, like sicking the pit bulls, right? On the, uh, on the, on the, on the postman or on the delivery man coming to the house. And the delivery man just, you know, backs away. But interestingly, the individual that we had the conversation with, the one who delivered the message, the one who was attacked, when we talked to them, they were very distraught. They were very, very upset. And they were upset because, how dare he do that to me? When he asked me to deliver the message, and how dare he do that to me? Nobody does that to me. This individual had spent a lifetime experiencing abuse by, by others. And this was another in a long series of encounters in which they were uh, being abused in their mind unfairly and unjustly. And in the course of this conversation, this, individ it's, this individual revealed to us that they would be um, doing things that will be torturing that other individual and that they will be they will get their justice they will get their comeuppance and when we called them out on that they said oh no 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 like without being able to recount and recall the entire conversation in specifics because we're being very vague because we to protect the identities of everyone involved number one number two we're not saying any of this to be a gossip but the the conversation with this individual was absolutely uh it was it was so revealing because of the way in which this individual could say one thing and then it, like admit to something and then three to five minutes later, because they were going on a, on a rant, they were very upset, they were very emotional. If we called them out on that thing, they would immediately deny that they ever said that. And many times when we were speaking to them, and trying to help them and and explain the the metaphysical phenomena of what was going on in this encounter where she was the messenger who was being shot any time we got within a hair's breadth of being able to deliver 
some nugget of truth, she immediately would react and send the conversation off on a tangent, like something popped into her head and would come out of would would come out, come out of their mouth. And it would be a tangent, and it would be now def- like ev- evading, avoiding, deflecting, sending the conversation on a completely different path. Anything to avoid facing and confronting the reality. And what was the reality? Well, this individual had gone through a lifetime of encounters like this, of being, quote, abused by others. And so much so that this little episode of her trying to deliver some information to someone and him his reacting poorly and shooting the messenger caused her entire day to collapse into a tailspin, into a downward spiral of anger and resentment and frustration and agitation. She was completely consumed by it. And when we confronted with all of that pain and suffering and all of the rationalizations and justifications about how right she was and how justified she was in feeling that way and how wrong the other individual was and how could he do that to her and cause her this much pain and suffering, when we attempted to enlighten her on what was really going on which was her own expectations her own fears her own pride were deceiving her that they were what were responsible for all of her anger and resentment and that these entities inside of her or what keep attracting people into her life to so-called abuse her. Because it's in those circumstances that these entities get triggered and come to the surface. And she's she was wholly and completely identified with them. It was I, 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 me, 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 me. How dare he do this to me? The voices of the entities were speaking through the individual. And the individual was oblivious. Or, if we called them out on it, we asked them, do you hear yourself? Do you hear yourself speaking? Do you know that you just said ABC? And they would go, no, I didn't. Or, no, no, yeah, 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 I know, I know, I know, I know, I know, I know, I know. But still, I'm going to do it. It it was a sight to behold. It was was such an illuminating exercise in what comes to mind is 
a cartoon in which the mother is trying to feed the baby with a with a with a spoon and and the baby is just right and and the mother is trying to get the spoon in the baby's mouth and the baby's doing everything to to prevent the mother from getting the 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 food in its mouth and the food is going everywhere all over the baby's face all over the baby's bib all over the kitchen everywhere the the, the baby food is going everywhere except in the baby's mouth that's what the conversation with this individual was like yesterday now of course the challenge for ourselves was to remain calm and relaxed and not get roped into this drama and not get sucked into the martial arts match and we very quickly shifted tactics anyway to planting planting seeds or sort of um, baiting the hook tossing the hook in the water and kind of teasing teasing the truth out of them you you lob the bait and the hook into the water and then you you wait and then you kind of slowly bring the lure back in right and that lures the fish right to the hook so that's what we had to do with this individual because there was no way they were going to take a direct hearing of the truth there's no way all we could do is try to prick their conscience and ask a question and toss that lure deep and far into the lake and then slowly tease the fish the big fish the big truth and or the big lie out of them so they so it, so it came out of their own mouth the problem was this individual was oblivious to what they themselves were saying which brings us to the obvious practical implication of all of this in order to know if we are deceiving ourselves ourselves or not or rather if we are being um, deceived by our own egos fear pride mostly but also if we have addictions right the demon of addiction but again addiction is self-loathing so really that's the demon of pride because self-loathing is pride because that ego of pride doesn't care if we love ourselves too much or we hate ourselves right that's the two sides of that coin in the same way that fear uh, wants its comfort and security but also the other side of that coin is it wants to control others it wants to sabotage other people's comfort and security why because by controlling others fear gains more uh, a greater sense of uh, comfort and security with that control by controlling others if i can control others in all my circumstances around me i'm creating this buffer zone i'm surrounding myself with yes men surrounding myself with, with yes men means i only ever hear what i want to hear 
That's my comfort and security, my sense of self, my little, my own little world, my little bubble. I'm reinforcing that bubble or I'm making the bubble bigger or I'm putting the bubble inside of another bubble. You can work with whatever visualization helps you comprehend the psychological country within yourself. So how do we know that this is taking place inside of ourselves? How do we know when we are being subjected to this kind of self-deception and self-sabotage? The answer is, how do you go about knowing anything without first observing. You cannot know a phenomenon without observing it. And more than just observing it, investigating it. Analyzing what you observe. Observing it is fine. Observing is the, good, is, is the first step. But then investigating it. Analyzing it. Noting the connections between the phenomena and other phenomena. Observing the cause and effect relationships between phenomena or between events and circumstances and that phenomena. And if we're talking about self-deception, that means we're talking about self-observation. Clearly, the individual that we were speaking to yesterday, who was oblivious to what they themselves were saying from one moment to the other, such that they would say one thing, and two or three minutes later, they would say the exact opposite, or they would deny having said the first thing, or they would, or they would. It was completely it was completely disjointed and disconnected. And many times we had to ask them, do you do you hear what you're saying? And then we would ask them, okay. So what you just said, was that coming from your innermost or was that coming from your ego? And then they would have to concede, oh, yes, of course, you're right, of course, you know, whatever. But I'm still right. I'm still justified. When we say self-observation, and when we emphasize how important it is, self-observation is to us what real-time malware protection is to your computer. Something which runs 24 hours a day, or at least if your computer is on, your real-time malware protection is on. Antivirus, anti-malware, anti-phishing, uh, firewall, all of these, all of these aspects and they're monitoring and they're looking and they're waiting 
for intrusion, for intruders, for threats that are trying to take control of your operating system, that are trying to gain access to information, passwords, anything of value. but trying to take control of your computer. That's what viruses and malware do. And try to act on your behalf without your knowledge. Without these tools, without that real-time monitoring, malware and spyware and even hackers right? Other actors, bad actors can come gain access to your system and take control. And before you know it, your computer is being used to send out spam messages to a mailing list of 500,000 people or a million people. And when the authorities track back on the IP, the origin of the spam or, or your computer is sending out malware, your computer is running phishing scams. And when the authorities uh, track back the IP address of where the phishing scam or the malware or the, uh, the uh, spam was, is coming from, next thing you know, you're getting a knock at the door because your computer was hijacked because you weren't running real-time malware protection and a firewall and all the other real-time tools required to prevent your system being taken over by bad actors and, and malevolent AI. And that's what our egos and demons are. They're bad actors and malevolent AI, and they're just taking control of our system. And this individual was wholly taken over and was oblivious to it. Even in her anger and frustration and everything else, they were, they were incapable of fully processing and appreciating the state in which they were in and the causes of that state. They were so fixated on blaming the other, on the other individual involved their attention, their focus, and everything was directed out there that they weren't observing themselves. And when we are angry, when we are disturbed, when we are upset, when, our, when we are stressed, when our peace and equanimity is distressed, these are the moments when it is most important for us to observe ourselves. Because th these are the times when it is most, uh, it is our greatest opportunity, our best opportunity to get a good glimpse at the demons that we still have to face and overcome inside of ourselves. When they come to the surface, when they show themselves, and they reveal themselves. They're out in the open and they're taking over the system.
In other words, we should be running the real-time virus scanning all the time. But when something fishy happens, or when a computer goes on the fritz, or something clearly is not right, that's when we do a real-time full system scan. Because something got through the safety net. Something got through the firewall. And it's starting to mess up the system. And I'm starting to lose control of my own system. That's when I especially need to take a deep breath, and pause and back up, back away and, and do a full system scan. What is going on? What is in control of me right now? And you hear all the voices in your head. I'm justified. I'm rationalized. How dare they? Da, 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 blah, blah, blah. You don't identify with those. Don't, because when you identify with them and you become attached to those voices, they become attached to you. The causes, the sources of those voices. It's you're like inviting the computer virus in and you're saying, here's the root directory, come on in. Or you're inviting the hacker in. That ego is using pain and suffering to knock at the door. And announcing itself as, I am your pain, I am your suffering, I'm going to help you, I'm going to get you satisfaction, I'm going to make you feel good, I'm going to get you your vengeance, I'm going to get you your justice. And you hear that and you go, hot dog, and you open the door and you let them right in. What comes to mind is the Saturday Night Live skit in the late 70s, early 80s. After Jaws came out, and they had the skit where they would play the Jaws music, and then you would hear a knock at the door of the apartment, and someone would say, who is it? And you would, on the other side of the door, you hear, Candyman. And the woman would say, no, 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 I know you, you're that clever shark. Telegram. <laughs> if, if you're familiar with the skit, you know what I'm talking about. It's the ways in which our egos get to us and get us to open that door and come in and have their way with us are infinite. It, we, we, we would have to devote the rest of our lives just to try to categorize and catalog all the different strategies and tactics and methods and lies and deceptions and half-truths or quarter truths, or three-quarter truths, or nine-tenths truths. If you want to talk about subtlety, our egos will, will because it is about, you, we know this about egos, about ourselves, just observing ourselves, but also doing, also observing pets or children. Have you ever noticed that pets and children always push the boundaries? They always see what they can get away with, how much they can get away with. They're always testing those boundaries, those limits. And our egos do the same thing. Just how far can they take their lie with us, their self-deception? Can they take it to where it's 50% uh, deception? 
How about 40%? How about 30? How about 20? How about 10? These are testing the limits. And self-deception where 90% of, of what we're being told, what we're telling ourselves via our egos, 90% true and 10% false. But that 10% false is enough for us to deceive ourselves, for us to be deceived by our own egos. And the arrogance that starts to come out in situations like that, because when you have 90% truth, Boy, does it, it, it feels like you know, it feels like it's the truth at that point. Because you have to have a very fine amount of discernment to be able to tell the difference between 90% truth and the whole truth. Right? Do you see that? That discernment is what's key here. And as we develop, and as we progress along the path, and as we develop more and more discernment, the egos have to become more and more subtle. They have to become more and more clever. The more we develop, the more discernment, the more con discernment we, we develop, and the more consciousness, the more conscious we become, the more subtle and clever and skillful our demons become, our egos. The analogy here, which is very powerful, is the analogy of uh, uh, video games and uh, the dungeon crawling type video games or the role-playing games, where the monsters on the first levels are pretty easy and as you get deeper and deeper and deeper into the game and further and further and further into the game, you go into deeper and deeper levels of the dungeon and the, and the monsters get harder. Well, they have to get harder because your character is getting better and you are getting better at the game. So as you're playing a game, the, the, the levels get more and more difficult the further into the game you become because the game matches where you are as a player. And then, of course, most if not all games have some kind of a final challenge or final boss, which is the most difficult challenge in the game. But by the time you face that boss, you should have been, the game should have prepared you for that challenge. So there's always a kind of equilibrium or, or only slight discrepancy between our level of being and the obstacles, the adversary uh, that we are opposing at any given time. Uh, but we must be aware of this. And self-deception and the mental gymnastics and all the rest of it that we were have been describing, we have to comprehend that the, the more we feel like we are immune to self-deception, the more subtle and more clever and more skillful the causes of self-deception uh, are becoming or have become. Because if you tell yourself that you're free and liberated of self-deception, oh, I don't deceive myself, guess what? That's self-deception. 
if you're telling yourself that you don't need to listen to this lecture, you don't need to take it seriously because you're immune to this. That happens to other people, but that's not me. Guess what? You're deceiving yourself. And that may be a hard truth to swallow. And that may be a truth that you want to avoid and evade and say, no, 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 that's, that's, that's wrong. That's not me. And you might go through a whole bunch of mental gymnastics and rationalizations and justifications to get you to reinforce and um, reassert that for yourself and reconvince yourself that you're not being deceived. But if you observe yourself and you observe that process, you will discover <laughs> that that process is the very process of self-deception that we've been talking about. So just let, th let it happen. Don't avoid it. Don't try to stifle it. Don't try to shut it down and shut it out. Don't allow some sort of mystic pride and self-righteous uh, cognitive dissonance to get in the way because that too is a subtle and clever avoidance. That too is a subtle and clever self-deception. So allow the thoughts to come up. Allow the mental gymnastics to take place but observe them and then meditate. Meditate on, on the experience. Meditate on them. Use your available free consciousness to analyze and contemplate and play out and say, oh, and, and just watch and re-witness and re-witness all the clever mental gymnastics. Like watching a Jackie Chan movie in slow motion. This is not an intellectual exercise. It is a conscious exercise. And observe and marvel at the agility, at the skill, at the timing, at the choreography, at all of it. Just marvel at it. Allow the wonder of the skill, the speed, the agility of our adversary and study it because that's that's our adversary and if you want to defeat an adversary you got to know their ways you got to know their tactics or strategies you got to you have to know what it is you are up against as sun tzu said you must know your enemy you must know yourself even more in the case of the path of awakening the consciousness, the self-realization of the being, the adversary is the self. The adversary is the mind. And there's only one way to know your mind. You must observe it. And this is a very helpful phenomenon, especially if what comes to mind tends to come out of your mouth. And that when you're angry and agitated, if you say whatever comes to mind and, and you blurt something out and it comes out of your mouth, that's potentially very useful and very helpful in terms of self-observation. Might not be so helpful in terms of your, your other relationships. 
but observing what you say and how you say it is a tremendously useful and powerful aspect of self-observation because the wor- because words have power and meaning and if something comes out of your mouth and you go well, and you're observing that and you're like where did that come from and did i say that I didn't mean to say that, or I didn't want to say that. Where where did it come from? Or something comes out of your mouth and you go, and and you're, you're taken aback and you go, wow, how did that come from me? I didn't say that. I don't know that. (laughs) Because sometimes it's coming from your egos. Sometimes it's coming from your innermost. Remember the cartoons when we were kids? Remember the little angel and the little demon whispering in our ear? Well, sometimes, especially when we're agitated, the angels and demons are like yelling at each other, (laughs) for lack of a better expression. And sometimes it's coming out of our own mouth. Um, Minx says, sometimes when it leaves your mouth, it's too late. Ah. It may be too late from the perspective of the relationship that, that, or the discussion or argument that you are in, but it's never too late to observe what comes out of your mouth. And that's what today's talk is about, how to deal with self-deception, how to deal with the causes of things within you, causing you another suffering. So what is it? What is it that made that thing come out of my mouth? Well, I can look at what came out of my mouth if I'm observing what came out of my mouth and go, I didn't want to say that. I didn't mean to say that. I would never say that. What the hell said that? Later, the end of the day, in meditation, you replay these circumstances in meditation. You replay that moment of that when you those words came out of your mouth how are you feeling what were you thinking what was the state of your body were you agitated were you relaxed were you stressed where was the stress in your body if you are observing your three brains and five centers practicing self observation when those words come out of your mouth you're not only going to hear them and hear those words and observe those words you're also going to be observing your mental state, your emotional state, and your motor, physical, sexual state. So that in meditation later on, you can contemplate and observe all of these things comprehensively in consciousness and the synthesis. You make, you avail yourself to the synthesis, to the comprehensive truth of the situation and say, ah, that was my pride or that was my fear. And it was getting me all worked up. And if you do this over and over and over again with practice, with experience, you begin to see patterns emerging. You begin to see signs emerging. So for example, in our case, uh, uh, the muscles in our legs and in our buttocks will tense up every time 
we're in an argument or a discussion and it's, it's getting heated and our fear is being triggered and our desire to control the outcome. And, and so now we are at a point where if those muscles start tensing up and we're in observation and we're observing ourselves and we can feel that we know that the demon is coming and the, demons, the demon wants to get in on this conversation. And we can observe that and we can watch it. It doesn't mean that we immediately relax it and make it go away. No, we want to, we want to see what it has to say. We'll let, we'll let it get as far as getting the thought into our head. We'll say, ah, okay, you thought you were going to get me to blurt that out, did you? Then it's not too late. But if you just keep pushing it down and suppressing it at an early stage, then you're just pushing that demon down. You're not getting yourself any closer to comprehending it and comprehending its ways. We have uh, some chats and some questions and they've been piling up, so we better uh, get at some of them. Um, Benj uh, Benjamin says, uh, we are only in control of our mind, conscious consciousness, heart, and uh, will, but the other four senses, they, they're pretty much on their own. Many of the emotions that we have and thoughts that we have, we're not in control of. They bubble up. And we just, we, we need to observe them. And we need to get at their source. Figure out what is the cause of these thoughts, feelings, and emotions. And also sensations. Because sensations in the body, likewise, many of them are caused by egos. So Azazel, yeah, they definitely become very clever and uh, annoyingly clever. Yeah, anybody who's been at doing this work for any length of time realizes that um, activities like meditation, uh, meditation doesn't become easier. Meditation becomes harder if you're doing it right. Just like a video game. Now, when we say that, it doesn't mean that what we're saying is meditation becomes less effective. No, it just becomes harder. But guess what? It's harder because you're getting better at it. It doesn't mean that you can't do it. It doesn't mean that you no longer are able to do it because it becomes too hard. No. It becomes harder because you're getting to deeper levels. It becomes more challenging. In the same way that climbing a mountain is relatively easy at the bottom, and as you get closer and closer and closer to the peak, it becomes harder and harder and harder. Uh, Mink says, pride and fear leading to anger will ruin your life. And then you're a demon dwelling in hell. Our egos can ruin our lives and hurt the ones we love most. One moment of self-forgetfulness, of not observing myself, can mount up and lead us so far away from ourselves only to, at some point, wake up to what we have done. Hard truth to see, I am nothing but a child. Well, wise and humble words. But the beauty about self-observation and this practice whereby we can liberate ourselves from the causes of, of our self-deception is... In conventional magic, 
and we're now referring to stage magic, right? Las Vegas uh, magic, Siegfried and Roy magic, Penn and Teller magic. They're called tricks. They're called magic tricks. And what's the key to not being fooled, not being tricked? In fact, Penn and Teller has a show, had, had a TV show. I'm not sure if it's still on television, but they had a TV show and there are many, many, many um, vignettes on YouTube. They had a TV show called Fool Us and they were inviting magicians onto their stage to perform a trick that they, that they Penn and Teller, wouldn't be able to figure out. And that's the key to conventional magic is that once you know the trick, you, you can't be fooled by that trick anymore. You, you know the trick. So the tricks that our egos play on us, the deceptions, they get us to believe one thing, which is very different from reality. Like magicians get us to believe that they make things disappear by blowing on them or they make things teleport from one hand to another or all the different magic tricks that you've seen in your life. They're, they're not, they're, they're not real magic. They're illusions. And in order for you to be able to see through the illusion, you have to see the trick. What is the technique? What is the unique trick that the magician, the illusionist is using to make the illusion seem real? What is the trick behind the deception? And once you see that, you begin to know the ways of that ego, the ways of that deceiver, of that illusionist. And, and so once you know its ways, it becomes, it can't trick you that way anymore. But it doesn't give up the fight. It becomes a better magician. It becomes a better illusionist. It becomes more subtle and more clever with more subtle and more clever tricks. But if we're on the path and we know that this is what they're doing and we know this is how they're proceeding and we know that the longer I play the video game, the harder it's going to get. We know that it's just a game. It's just an illusion. No matter what fear throws in my face, I'm never to identify with it. I'm never to become attached with it. No matter what my mind throws at me, I'm never to identify with it. I'm never to... Uh, attach myself to it. It's always provisional. Except in those cases, when we feel it in our heart, and we know it like we know it like we know it, because it's coming from our innermost being. It's not in the mind. Sometimes the innermost being will use the mind as a tool and, and put stuff into our mind. But always, always, it'll be accompanied by the still soft voice in the heart, the voice of intuition, the voice, the, the, the profound feelings of inspiration, of imagination. And it's through discernment that we know the difference between the two. And that way, we are we we can tell that when things are just coming from our mind on their own versus things that are coming from our true self, our innermost. And this way, even though 
We can still have egos. And even though those egos will be trying to deceive us, we will become all but immune. Not free of, not, oh, I don't have to worry about that, but protected, immune, because we are observing ourselves. We've developed a psychological conscious immune system, a psychological conscious uh, anti-malware suite that we're running 24 hours a day to pr protect our operating system from the malware and the, and the bad actors, the, the hackers. Benjamin says, the process of observant the light of intelligence and where is the thought focused at or focusing? And Jamie says, hello, Atlas, random question. Is it necessary to be a part of a Gnostic group or to be a missionary in order to walk the path of the initiation? Uh, Jamie, just by the nature of your question, we intuit or we uh, uh, deduce that you've recently had an encounter with uh, Ajax. A-G-E-A-C, or one of their affiliates. No, it is not necessary to be uh, a Gnostic missionary in the strict or official sense. Is it necessary to be part of a Gnostic group? It's beneficial if the Gnostic group is genuine and if it is available to you and local to you and is practical for you to be able to join it, it is beneficial to be a part of a Gnostic group. There are benefits to that. Is it absolutely necessary? No. We have not been a member of a Gnostic group now for, what, 10 years? Something like that. But we were a member of one, and while we were a member of one, it was of tremendous benefit. Um, However, we also had a intimate relationship with a Gnostic missionary who worked for Ajax. And uh, her and her Ajax um, friends, who also were Gnostic missionaries at Ajax, um, for lack of a better expression, rejected us. they were threatened and afraid by, and I'm going to quote here, by a kind of gnosis that I never knew it could exist, that I never knew existed and couldn't imagine myself uh, attaining or something to that, to that effect. She also said that she was married to Ajak and that Ajak was uh, her first love and that that was, and that where I'm going, she cannot follow. So the only reason why we bring this up is because you use the word missionary in your question. 
uh, we have had our run-ins with Gnostic groups and Gnostic schools. And all we can say is, as we've been trying to point out in today's talk, self-deception, no one, no one is ever free from self-deception. And it takes so many different forms and can express in so many different ways. And uh, hypocrisy and uh, fanaticism. Fanaticism is just another kind of uh, addiction. It's a mental addiction and an and, and emotional addiction. <clears throat> but it's also identification. It's also an identification and an attachment and an inability for somebody to let go of their dogma or their identification with a particular group or whatever. These are all very real uh, hindrances and obstacles that the ego places for us on the path and mystic pride. And many members of Gnostics, Gnostic groups will develop a mystic pride because they are the chosen ones. They are the initiates. They have access to the secret teachings and the secret rites and the secret rituals. Um, so there are benefits to being in a good group and a good school. But be aware go in with your eyes open and um we can't we cannot afford to be naive the black lodge is everywhere and it's in everyone in this day and age and um it's not that we have to be cynical and skeptical we just need to be aware and awake and calm and relaxed and recognize that everyone we're we're all we're only human in that sense, right? We're 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 all flawed. We're all fallible. And um, not to put too much stock in any one person or group or teaching or anything. And if you do not have access to a school, if you do not have access to a group, relax. There are more than enough resources online. There are enough lectures and material on on glorian.org to um to keep you occupied for the next five years um and they even reveal how to do things like do your own unction in your house in other words how to how to bless uh unleavened bread and and um uh water and grape juice in your home so that you can recreate the the rite of the holy unction and replay the ritual of the last supper even by yourself just you and your innermost being and the logos and your divine mother and and have a solemn sacred rite of communion of holy communion with the holy spirit through the body of the Divine Mother and have those two united in the Christ, in the Logos, within you. This is my body which will be given up for you. This is my blood. This is the cup of the new and everlasting covenant. It will be shed for you and for all. So, the details on 
how to go about doing that. It's it's all online. And it's also in Master Samael's books. So if you do not have access to a school, if you do not have access to a group, there is a way, there is a path for you. And just relax and just walk whatever's whatever is available to you. Dharmakaya says, love your comment, content, brother. It is really helping me. A fool trying to walk the path of initiation. You keep me motivated to keep working. Deepest love and gratitude to you. It is our honor and privilege. It is our honor and privilege, Dharmakaya. And it is it warms our heart. And it, it w- words like yours motivate us to keep going and keep doing what we are here to do. All right. As Azale says, there are enough, there are enough information there for lifetimes basically to be comprehended. Yeah. Yeah. It would take you, we don't know how long it would take you to actually get through the material, but as Azale is correct, it would take you lifetimes to actually comprehend the the full significance of the material there. We're just trying to get it. Well, we don't want to say to someone, it's going to take you lifetimes to read it all (laughs) because we don't want to overwhelm anyone either. But there is plenty of there. And there are also lectures on on how to begin and where to begin. There's a whole series in that uh, website called Introductory Information. And that's where you can begin. Mink says, how do I go on with life when there is no greater pain than walking, waking up again after having descended in consciousness, ego mind, borderline splitting, to having ruined your own life and how it must have been for your loved one? There is no greater pain than losing grip on who you are and reality. And for the ones you love, and who loved you to witness this descent into mental illness and self-deception. How can I ever live up to that regret, shame, and guilt? There are several universal truths which we can take heart in. The first one is, uh, what doesn't kill you makes you stronger. And if you're familiar with any type of weightlifting or bodybuilding or sparring or any type of physical activity or even learning the piano or you know, or any type of skill, you know that failure is part of the development process. And to quote a contemporary uh, film, series of films, we can go to the Christopher Nolan Batman trilogy, where the entire theme of the trilogy is falling and climbing back out, getting back up. Why do we fall, sir? So we can get ourselves back up again and in the third film in the trilogy the batman rises that's batman rises is is 
is all about that. The Dark Knight Rises, sorry. The Dark Knight Rises. To the point where Bruce Wayne is thrown into this pit, this pit of terrible suffering because there's no actual, there's no bars on it. It's just this pit where, and the worst thing about it is that there's hope. You can see the sky gives you hope that you might be able to get out, but every time you try, you just come crashing down. You fail. And in that film, it's Bruce Wayne's fear that he has to overcome in order to escape the pit. He has to, he has to make the leap of faith without the rope. his back broken, his city lost and under siege, his faith and trust in others betrayed, tossed away and thrown aside, thrown away like so much garbage into a pit of, of hell on earth, a back broken and a television to watch the fruits of his failure. The second thing we will say is that, of course, he, he makes it out. And if you've seen the film, you know how it ends. But the second thing that we can take hope in is that our Divine Mother orchestrates all of our tests and our trials and our ordeals, and that because karma is intelligently managed, all of our egos, the demons that we have inside, that form our individual shaitan, the adversary, our individual Satan, who we combat, the legion of, of monsters, demons, that we have to overcome within ourselves, that's all managed and all arranged and orchestrated by our individual Divine Mother. And she never, ever dishes out more than we can handle. It might feel like we can't handle it. We might feel like we're overwhelmed. We might feel like things are hopeless. But guess what? Those are just egos in our mind deceiving us. But that's the self-deception. The negative talk, the negative self-talk. Oh, it's a hopeless. Oh, I'm a failure. I'm a loser. Oh my gosh, it's a, it's hopeless. I'm you know I'm, I'm I always mess things up. I'm a terrible person, and on and on and on and on and on and on. We go berating ourselves, putting ourselves down, or shaking our fist at the heavens, or what whatever. That's all self-deception. All that negative self-talk. Do you think that's coming from your innermost being? Do you think that's coming from your Divine Mother, who's pure love, who furnishes us with all we need on the path? you think that she's the one berating you? Then why are you attaching yourselves to those voices? Why are you allowing that negative self-talk to reign? Why are you looking at reality and subjectively judging it as hopeless? When you should know deep down that there is always hope. There is always a way. There is always a path out of hell. Redemption is a door which is closed to no one. 
No one is beyond redemption. No one. So take heart in that. Take heart in the fact that the loved ones around you, the people that you may have hurt, the people who may have suffered because of your choices, your path, your your suffering, the suffering that you went through, inadvertently led to the suffering of others, the suffering of people whom you love. Try to comprehend that their suffering is theirs, not yours. It's their reactions to your suffering that cause them suffering. And their suffering is part of their journey, just as your suffering is part of your path and your journey out of suffering. So just as in our case, well, we're going to take this text off the screen now because it's, um, in our case, we have had this lifetime, 49 years, in a family in which we're the black sheep and nobody can understand what the hell we are and what it is that we're doing. And all they can do is point to what we're not doing, which is not taking their advice and not doing what they're telling us we should do and not getting out and getting a job and doing this and having a career and finding a wife and getting married and blah, blah, blah. And, you know, having a house and a mortgage and two cars and two kids and all the rest of it, right? All that worldly success, which they, they think is so important and they think that we're suffering so terribly because we don't have any of it. And that they're suffering on our behalf and they're, they're worried for us and they're concerned about us and that we're somehow ruining their lives because of this. No, they have a choice. They have a choice to accept us as we are, respect us for who we are and why we're here, and actually really, actually try to really get to know us. To really listen and really try to comprehend. Because if they did that, they would say, oh, well, that's pretty important what you're doing. And that's, that sounds pretty, pretty um, worthwhile. That's, that seems like a worthwhile pursuit for a life. Maybe, um, you know, maybe I'll support you in that. And don't get me wrong, they do. They do. Even if on the surface they may bitch and complain and say what they will to each other behind our back, the fact of the matter is that our biological family never abandoned us. And we have a, you know, and most of the loved ones that we have in our life won't, even though we bring them suffering and they suffer because of what we're going through, et cetera, et cetera. So everything happens for a reason. There's rhyme and reason to everything under the sun, including you, the way you are, everything that you've gone through everything that you have yet to go through. And that destiny, that potential, that light at the end of the tunnel, 
which calls to you, which beckons you to continue forward, fumbling through the dark. To have faith, to trust that inner, still, soft voice. And remember always your innermost intimate Divine Mother. And we just shared a link in the chat to our article about the Divine Mother. She is the way. She is the one putting down the breadcrumbs, leading you through the dark wood and out of the dark wood. Put your faith and trust in her. Remember her. Pray to her. As uh, we'll just Minx describes. Thank you so much, Atlas, especially for the last part about the door of redemption not being closed, and that it is the ego's telling it is too much. Suicide would be the triumph of Satan. Yes, correct. In fact, suicide is laziness. All the egos will grant gang up on you and beat you up and get you to beat yourself up through a tremendous, a tremendous uh, barrage of self-deception. Truly. And when you are completely exhausted, completely beaten down, completely defeated, laziness will come to you as, a, as your savior with an exit strategy. A bottle of pills, a tall building, a loaded gun, and la laziness will say to you, don't worry, It'll be painless, and you'll be free. Self-deception. As Azil says, it's like the Greek god Moros, the god of impending doom. Yes, well, there you go. And where, where, the, where the word comes from, no doubt, morose, to feel morose and to something that, to, to be that way, like that nothing's going to work out. To be morose means we're all doomed. There's no hope. Hopelessness. Benjamin Ochoa says, there's a chapter just dedicated on the descent of ourself into ego. Our karma seems like it remains at the top of the list. So the descent into hell is part of the comprehension of Jacob's ladder and Dante's ladder. We've just we've discussed this many, many, many times. And the perfect contemporary allegory to this is Dungeons and Dragons and the role-playing game, 
where you descend into levels and levels and levels and levels and levels of the dungeon. And the deeper you go, the harder the monsters get. And every time you kill a monster, you get more experience points and more treasure. You're getting your consciousness back, but you're also generating experience. And, and every time you get a certain amount of experience, you go up a level. So you're, le you're going deeper in levels of the dungeon, but as you do so, you're leveling up your character and you're recovering treasure. This is, this is how it works. It's the alm of life. To go around and around and around in the spiral, right? On the expanding spiral. In order to get to the next higher level, you have to go to the next deeper level. And then you go up. And then you go to the next higher level. And then you go to the next deeper level. Just take your finger and draw, or a pen and draw a growing spiral. That's the alm of life. That's your path. You cannot get to the next level if you draw if what you have to work with is a spiral you cannot get to the next level without first going down when you're drawing a spiral that's that's the only way it works so the deeper in hell that you are or have been the greater the exaltation the greater the 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 reward even master samael said every Exaltation is preceded by a great humiliation. It's, it's just the way it works. And what doesn't kill us makes us stronger. Does anybody have any other questions? Or any comments or anything to share? regarding this topic of self-deception. We encourage you to, as always, observe yourself. Pay attention. Observe the ways that your mind deceives you or is trying to deceive you. Question it. And also, pay attention to the people around you, to the interactions you have with them to how they react to what you know to be the truth. If you're trying to have a conversation or an exchange with someone online, for example, and observe the way the mental gymnastics that they do, this will help you identify when those mental gymnastics are playing out in your own mind, in your own psyche. You'll say, oh, wait, I've seen this before. And when, when it was happening with somebody else, they couldn't see it, but I could see it. Now it's happening inside of me. I bet you there are people around me who can see it, but I can't see it. This is, this is subtle. This is, this is clever. But if you, the more experience you have observing not just the 3D universe, but the 4D and 5D reality as best as you can and you live in a field of energy and a field of vibration and you you begin to see right the mental gymnastics you begin to see the the egos working in others and the more you do that without judgment 
And without mystic pride, without self-right, you, you don't do this self-righteously. Oh, look at those sleepwalk, these sleeping zombies. I'm awake, right? You don't do any of that. You look with humility and compassion. And then you can, in meditation, especially in cases where you are confronted by someone who is exhibiting cognitive dissonance, self-deception, self-sabotaging behavior, and, and you have an exchange with them. And later in meditation, it is important to do a retrospection on that exchange because in meditation you want to pray to your innermost and your divine mother to show you what it is you need to learn from that exchange and if that exchange that circumstance that encounter possibly an argument or whatever the case may be it is very likely what you're identifying in that other person, it's very likely they are a mirror to you in some way. They are mirroring you. Now, they might be at a different level, but the phenomena that's being triggered, that's coming to the surface, and you observe yourself, if you observe the frustration, if you observe stress, observe yourself, you, that, that somehow you are also being disturbed. Your peace is also being disturbed. In meditation, in retrospection, you want to recollect and retrospect on that exchange and ask and pray your Divine Mother to reveal, to show you what it is you're missing, what it is you need, what, what's your takeaway? Because everything happens for a reason. And it's not just that they came into your life so that you could educate them about something and, oh, they had cognitive dissonance and they're deceiving themselves and they're being difficult and stonewalling me. And blah, 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 what an ignorant zombie. Ah, to hell with you. I'm done. I'm, I'm finished casting pearls before swine. And you walk away self-righteously with indignation. Does that sound like the, the takeaway that your divine mother or your innermost being planned? For you to take for you to take away from that encounter there's a great deal to be said for humility and compassion and yes while it is true we need wisdom and we need to know when not to cast pearls before swine and all of that is true but it is also true that we must learn how to govern our emotions and our mind and master it so that and it is important that we do not fall into the same trap of self-deception albeit more subtle but as we said the more the more progress we make the more difficult our adversary becomes and the more subtle and more clever and insidious our the adversary becomes so we must never become complacent and we must never fall for that self-deception where you say, aha, I'm finished. I'm at such and such a level. 
I've done all the work that I need to do. I don't need to worry about this anymore. No. You don't need to worry about it. Don't worry about it. That's just fear. But don't kid yourself. Don't fall for that self-deception. You're not a self-realized master yet. None of us are. So let us go forth with clarity, with honesty, with ourselves, as much as with others. And let us not deceive others. And let us not allow ourselves to be deceived, be it by others, but also in the context of today's talk, by ourselves. One last call for questions or comments. Aisling, says, Aisling Joy says, I look forward to your live streams every week and for the guidance and inspiration they provide. I would be lost in much confusion without them. Thank you for your efforts in offering your time and wisdom to us all. It is our honor and our privilege, Aisling. We, we appreciate you and it is, we are humbled by your words and we, um, we hope you will continue to um, join us and find value in, in our work. Anyone else? Anything else? If not, thank you for joining us. Thank you for being here. Uh, again, we hope to see you all again next week. And uh, until then, uh, God bless and uh, inverential peace. <laughs>